Today we are uh, starting Romans 16, uh, uh, Milford. So, uh, yes, we are still in Romans. Yeah. <coughs> but uh, you will notice that is the last chapter. So, uh, so uh, <coughs> today my original intent is to uh, look at about the first four and a half verses of chapter 16. But to be honest with you... <laughs> After I started preparation, I uh, thought that even might be optimistic. <laughs> so we'll see how far we get. Uh, <clears throat> but uh, last week we were looking at uh, the last half a dozen or so verses of chapter 15. Um, so uh, if you would kind of look down through those verses that we looked at last week, I think... Uh, I think we looked at verses, uh, kind of picked it up in 26 and 27 and went down through the end of the chapter. So look at those verses and see what are some things you see there that we talked about last week that you remember that stand out in your mind. Okay, okay. Yeah, he's uh, he's very forthright about... about uh, Asking these people to contribute because he's not asking for himself, is he? He's asking for others. Okay. What else? He's very clear on on letting them know that he does appreciate them and he does love them, even though he hasn't been able to come to them. Okay. He really is excited. Yeah, yeah, he's very, uh, very optimistic. He's wanted to come for a considerable amount of time. It's been his desire to go to Rome. And why has he not done so so far? He's been prevented by what? Okay, because he had other things to do. So we learned the lesson that. Uh, that when we uh, serve the Lord in one way, that precludes us from serving the Lord in other ways. Uh, that actually should help uh, relieve some of the guilt we sometimes feel. You know, oftentimes we see uh, opportunities for ministry or opportunities for service, and we hear people pleading for, you know, we need your help over here. We need, and, and sometimes, you know, I feel guilty because I think, well, I ought to go do that, or I ought to go do that, or I ought to go do that. And then I run no, wait a minute. I'm busy. <laughs> God has me doing something else, and uh, so uh, so it, it it is actually a release valve for for that guilt trip that sometimes gets laid on us because we're not doing what somebody else thinks we ought to be doing for the kingdom of God. So so he was the Holy Spirit had him busy doing something else, but he finally had that job finished of uh, reaching those areas that the Holy Spirit wanted him to reach, but. So he's all available now to go to Rome, but he's not going to go yet. What's the deal? Go in the other direction. Take the contribution and all the letters on the back. Okay. Okay. So he's going the opposite direction. Instead of going to Rome, he's almost there. He's right on the threshold of Italy. And uh, and instead of going to Rome, he's going to turn around and go 2,000 miles out of his way to go back to Jerusalem. And he's going to do so to take back this offering that he's been collecting for the church in Jerusalem, for the poor people in Jerusalem. Why is Paul doing that? Why doesn't he send it by somebody else's hand? I mean, he could do that. You know, it's just money. You just give it to somebody else who's reliable and trustworthy and have them do it, and then you can get on doing with what you want to do. Why is he, why is he going 2,000 miles out of his way? Take it personally, so it's not just an offering, it's kind of a uh, relationship between the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians. Yeah, yeah. 
And, and the Jewish Christians have a great deal of suspicion of Paul. They have a great deal of question in their mind about whether or not Paul is, is uh, really on track and whether or not he really is, uh, uh, still really loves them and, is, and considers himself to be, uh, be close to them and part of them. And so this really is an expression of Paul's love that he would go so far out of his way. You know, I, I wonder uh, how many of us would be willing to go 2,000 miles out of our way just to make sure that somebody, some other Christian understands that we are with them, that we're united with them, that we support them. Uh, how many of us would go 2,000 miles out of our way to make sure that we overcome some misunderstanding? And, uh, and so Paul has done this. And then he says, he says, when I come, when I finally come to you in Rome, he says, how does he say he's going to come there in those verses? Fullness of the blessing of Christ. And, and, uh, and, and I really think what Paul is saying there is, is I really want to come and I believe God wants me to come to you. But if I come before I've done everything I need to do in this other venue, in this other responsibility that I have, if I come before, I'm not going to have the sense of God's blessing on it. There's a job I need to really do. I need to, I need to make this gesture of unity and love to the believers back in Jerusalem. And it's only after he does that that he feels that he, when he goes to Rome then, that he can do so with the fullness of the blessing of Christ. And uh, and so so his his delay in going to Rome is actually to the advantage of the Romans because that what that means is when he finally comes to Rome he's going to have God's unreserved blessing on what he does. So uh, so these are some of the things that we talked about last week and Paul then reaches the conclusion of uh, of that section of uh, of the letter. Uh, with his benediction there in verse 33 where he says, Now the God of peace be with you all, which is, of course, a, 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 in some ways a typical benediction. Uh, and and uh, the problem is sometimes when we read things that Paul says repeatedly or that are repeated sometimes in Scripture almost in a formulaic way like this verse, we often kind of dismiss them and slide right over them. But it really is a pretty profound statement. What's the difference? <clears throat> Uh, about 20 years. We're talking about the mid-50s uh, A.D. and he was converted shortly after uh, Pentecost sometime in the few years right after Pentecost which would be mid-30s. So we're talking about 20 years or so. Well, you would hope so. But this is something we learn about people. <laughs> that Sometimes we don't get over things we should have gotten over a long time ago. <laughs> so, uh, uh, yeah, actually, uh, when he does finally get back to Jerusalem after this letter is written, we find there's still great suspicion of him. Uh, so uh, you would think ideally they would have gotten past that, particularly after the Jerusalem Council in chapter 15. But when we see him return to Jerusalem there at the end of Acts, uh, there's still a great deal of suspicion there, which is what necessitates him taking the vow that he takes, etc. There, I mean, yeah. 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 And uh, there's, uh, you'll remember, he goes into the synagogue, or, or excuse me, into the temple to worship. And uh, some people see him there, and they conclude that he's brought Gentiles into the temple. There's a big disturbance. And the Romans come in and take him and, uh, to get him out of there. Uh, they're not, they don't have any particular hostility to him, but they're trying to settle, the, you know, settle down the uproar. And uh, the net result is he ends up in prison for two years. Uh, because the Jews keep trying to keep him in prison. So, yes. That's how he got to Rome. Rome. Yeah, so when... So, uh, you have to keep that in mind when he's uh, uh, standing for Agrippa. I forget who it was, which official it was now he's standing for, but he's standing before Agrippa or whoever there uh, there at the end of Acts. And 
And the suggestion is made that he be turned back over to the Jews uh, in order to have this issue resolved. And at that point, Paul appeals to Caesar. Okay, And as a Roman citizen, he had this right. It'd be like us appealing to the Supreme Court. He had this right to appeal to Caesar, uh, which he does. But you have to keep in the back of his mind when, when Paul is doing that, you have to keep back in mind what Paul's motivations are all along as he wants to get to Rome. So... Uh, so he's he's trapped in this situation in Judea at the time. He's been in prison now for a couple of years, and uh, and and it, it's not looking real promising before he gets to Rome. Then then he's standing before a Roman official again. He gets this chance to say, you know, what he wants, and he says, I, I want to appeal to Caesar, and uh, that seals it. Then he knows he's going to have a, a Roman escort all the way. Uh, all the way to Rome. So it's one way to get out of this predicament in Judea and to get to Rome ultimately. So I think it was more than just simply uh, that he wanted to appeal his case. I think Paul in the back of his mind is thinking, this is my way to get to Rome. So, uh, but did you have any other thoughts on that, Gary? Well, I'm just, I'm just thinking about the Acts story where he's, he's warned twice not to go to Jerusalem. Yes, he warned repeatedly not to go. Yes. Yeah. 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 I'm just trying to figure out I'm just thinking yeah. Yes, uh, and actually when you read those warnings, it's kind of interesting the way they're worded because they're not actually saying don't go. They're saying if you go, this is what's going to happen. And so they're saying the Holy Spirit is warning if you go, this will happen. And then the people themselves are saying, please don't go. But it's not the Holy Spirit telling them not to go to Jerusalem. Uh, It's the the concern, the burden of the people and their love for Paul that's saying don't go. But uh, so that's an interesting study. Yeah, you were going to say something over. Yeah, I did, uh, last week we talked about verse 26, Macedonia and uh, Achaia, that they were not exactly, if I remember correctly, they weren't exactly some of the most prosperous churches. Uh, that, yes, we did talk about that. Actually, Achaia, there doesn't seem to have been a problem in Achaia, uh, which would be the lower portion of what's now the Greece, Greek peninsula that we think of today. But in Macedonia, it was certainly a case that they were, and we did talk about that, that they were giving out of their, what he calls their abject poverty. And so they were very poor, and yet they were begging Paul. Paul didn't even expect them, in some cases, to give. And they were insisting that they have the privilege of giving. So, yeah, we talked about that a little bit. Down in Corinth, uh, and the lower part of the peninsula, in Achaia, uh, it appears that they were, uh, they were uh, in, in, a much, in a much better situation financially uh, and a little bit more able to contribute than Paul uh, exhorts them quite strongly to contribute because of that prosperity that they have. We'll talk a little bit more about Corinth today as we go on in chapter 16. But, so. Any other comments? Well, that largely concludes the letter. Uh, except for we come now to what Paul does typically at the end of his epistles are his, uh, his greetings. And there's a little bit more in this chapter 16 than his greetings. He talks a little bit about false teachers later in the passage. But the bulk of the chapter is devoted to his giving his greetings. Uh, first, there's a commendation at the very beginning of the chapter we'll talk about today. And then he launches into, beginning in verse 3, these greetings. And he actually greets about 26 different People, 24 of them by name and a couple others that he doesn't actually name them, but he indicates who the greetings are going to. So there's a slew of people here that he's greeting. And uh, and as uh, scholars have studied Romans 16, uh, it's kind of interesting what people do with it because... Uh, because uh, this is really unusual for Paul to greet this many people. It's obvious that most of these people he knows in some way. Uh, some of them may be just people he knows about, but the, but the majority of these people he knows uh, obviously personally. And, and so uh, the question comes up, and we'll talk more about this probably next week when we get into actually uh, more of the greetings themselves, but uh, the question comes up, how does Paul know this many people in a church he's never visited? Okay. And so some people have suggested that Romans 16 really doesn't even belong to the book of Romans. Uh, So I don't know if you've come across that, but I just want to address it briefly. Some people think uh, that Romans really ends, uh, some people actually think Romans ends at the end of chapter 14. 
some people think Romans ends at the end of chapter 15. And uh, so there are a number of people who, uh, who think that Romans 16 was probably originally written to a church, a large church that Paul was more familiar with because there's so many names here. Uh, and uh, the suggestion, and the suggestion is often made, most often made, is that it was actually originally written to Ephesus and somehow got attached later to the book of Romans. Okay? Uh, uh, and as I said, uh, when we actually get into the list of the greetings, it's substantially probably next week. Uh, I'll address that more in detail. But I just want to point out that there's absolutely no manuscript evidence that Romans 16 has ever been detached from the rest of the book. Okay, So the, the manuscript evidence is pretty solid. There's a couple things that people raise issues about. But the manuscript evidence is pretty solid that Romans 16 has always been a part of the book of Romans. And, uh, and next week, as I said, we'll go into the, the, the greetings, more of the greetings in particular, and I'll explain to you why I think it's actually quite obvious that Romans 16 was actually written to Rome and why Paul would address so many people uh, the way he does in this chapter. Uh, but the question is, why do we even bother studying Romans chapter 16? I mean, it's just a bunch of names, right? There are people... Most of them, the vast majority of them, are not mentioned anywhere else in Scripture. We know nothing about them except what's said here in Romans chapter 16. And it's obviously Paul's just kind of wrapping things up and saying, say hi to so-and-so and say hi to so-and-so and say hi to so-and-so. And so, you know, so why do we even bother? I think it shows the relationship aspect of spreading the gospel. Okay. All these people... Paul had some sort of a relationship with them. Okay. Because he didn't just stand on the street corner and have them track and send them on their way. Okay. He worked with people. He worked okay. with these people. He okay. Worked with people. He okay. Uh, so what difference does that make to us? I think that Paul, that's an example of how we're supposed to be with other people. Okay. Okay. Great. The church is not just a group of people that family, my, my wife and my kids and I were, had gone out here to the Norman Cemetery to uh, just to visit my mother's grave. I don't know if it was Memorial Day weekend or whatever. We just stopped to look at my mother's grave. And as we were walking through the cemetery, we were just looking at all these headstones of all these people, you know, and and we were just reflecting on how they're just all these. They're just you walk through a cemetery and they're just names and dates, right? But we were thinking about how every single one of those people buried under that headstone down in the ground had a life story. Every one of them had a life story. And uh, we were talking about how fascinating it would be to just to go into a cemetery like the Norman Cemetery up here and just go through and pick a headstone, pick a name and do research and study and learn about that person and what is their life story? What are, you know, what are the experiences? What did they go through? You know, what was their family life? What were the circumstances of their death, etc.? Et everybody has a life. Everybody has a life story like you have a life story, right? And uh, and it's you know, in many ways, uh, very joyous. In many ways, probably very sad. Uh, some ways very significant, other ways very mundane. But we all have this life, and every one of the people lying there, in, you know, whose bones now are interred there in the cemetery up there on Porter, uh, have a life story. And, and uh, actually, my daughter Gabrielle suggested that'd be something she'd like to do. She never got around to doing. I tried to prod her to do it a couple times, but you know, one of those things you you know we're talking about, you never get done because you got other things to do. You know, but. But when we come across names like that in the New Testament, we have to remember every one of these people has a life story. It's every bit as profound and significant as your life story. And we have to remember that Paul says in another place, he says, all Scripture is given by the inspiration of God. And all Scripture is profitable for reproof, for instruction, and etc., 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 right? So, so as I read this list of 
greetings and names. I have to remember that, the, that it wasn't just Paul saying to these people, hello, you know, or greet these people for me. It wasn't just Paul, but the Holy Spirit was having Paul write this. And so, as I look at this chapter, I have to ask myself, well, what does the Holy Spirit want me to learn from this chapter? And admittedly, uh, when you come across a list of names like this or in the genealogies back in the Old Testament or whatever, it, it sometimes is a little more hard work to figure out what it is the Lord wants us to learn. But I do think there are some great lessons to be learned from uh, things like this. And so we'll take some time to think about it. And he starts out in verse 1 of chapter 16 and he says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe who is a servant of the church which is at Concrea, that you receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints, and that you help her in whatever matter she may have need of you. For she herself has also been a helper of many as and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who for my life risk their own necks, to whom not only do I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Also, greet the church that is in their house. And we're not going to try to go any further than that. We may not get that far, okay? So we just want to try to talk about three people today. Phoebe and Prisca or Priscilla and Aquila, her husband, okay? So, um, so Paul starts out here... Uh, with this commendation at the beginning of the chapter regarding this particular woman, Phoebe. And, and uh, again, this is a name we don't encounter anywhere else in the New Testament. All we know about Phoebe, we know from what it says in these two verses. But actually, it tells us a great deal about her. Uh, one is we know that Phoebe was a Gentile. Uh, at least that's a pretty safe assumption. Uh, and the reason we know she's a Gentile is because of her name. Uh, as we get into this list of names uh, later on down through the chapter, uh, it's, uh, uh, you can actually discover a lot about a person just by their names because there were certain names that tended to be associated with Gentiles and there were certain names that tended to be associated with Jews. So you can oftentimes tell by a person's name whether they're Gentile or Jew. Certain names were associated with people who were more well-to-do, uh, came from more influential uh, areas of society and culture. Uh, certain other names were more associated with slaves uh, or with people who had been slaves and subsequently been freed, people we called freedmen. Okay? So when we read those names, we know this person was either a slave or a freedman uh, because, because those kind of names were reserved for people that came from that social class in society. Uh, so we can actually discover and learn a lot of things about people just from their names. And we, we discover about Phoebe that she's a Gentile. This is a Gentile name. Uh, but not only is it a Gentile name, but it's a very pagan name. Okay, and, and that's because the name Phoebe actually comes from one of the Greek goddesses. Okay, So one of the things where it's very safe for us to assume about Phoebe is that she was born into a Gentile pagan family, okay? This is, a, you know, we typically when somebody names their children, they try to think of a name that's significant. Uh, sometimes parents just pick a name they sound, think sounds pretty or whatever. But oftentimes, you know, people get their baby books out or their, you know, name books out or they go online and they try to figure out, you know, what is a name that has some meaning or has some significance? And that was... I think even more so true in ancient times than it is today. Uh, so, so it's fairly safe for us to assume that this woman, Phoebe, was born to and raised in a pagan family who, who thought it was a really good thing to name their daughter, this new daughter of theirs, to name her after this pagan goddess, this Greek goddess. Okay? And... Uh, and so that tells us a little bit about her. And we know, too, that she comes from this city of Cancrea. Now, when I read that, that name in my Bible, I like to say 
synchria, because that's how it looks like it's spelled, right? But actually, in the Greek, it's spelled with the first letter, the kappa, uh, which is obviously the k sound in Greek. So, the really, apparently, the proper pronunciation of the name is synchria. So, even though I hate to say it that way, uh, that's the way I'll pronounce it for you. Uh, so, she came from the city of Kinkria. Now, what do we know about this city, Kinkria? Do you know anything about it? Okay, and uh, and what do we what happens in Acts eighteen in Kinkria? Okay, <laughs> Paul took a vow and cut his hair. Well, that tells us a whole lot about the city, doesn't it? <laughs> but actually, what is significant about that verse uh, and what it does tell us, uh, one of the things it tells us about Kinkria, is that it's on the way as he's leaving Corinth and he's getting ready to set sail to Syria at the end of his uh, uh, end of his uh, second missionary journey, and he's getting ready to sell, set sail to Syria. He leaves Corinth and he stops at Concrea and uh, takes a vow there where he's already taken a vow. And so he has his hair cut. Now, uh, I don't know what the association is with his vow and having your hair cut. That happens again later in Acts as well. But, uh, but that's not the issue. The issue is that Concrea is a city that's very close to Corinth. So, now you're going to have to bear with me here in my, uh, my artistic capabilities here. But if we try to draw a map here, we have uh, Jerusalem down here. This is the Mediterranean Sea over here. Okay, so this is the Mediterranean. Okay. And you have uh, Asia Minor. Okay. And it comes up like so. Uh, and you have the Strait of Bosphorus up here, etc. And then up here you have the Black Sea. Okay. Uh, does that ring any bells to you, the Black Sea? Any significance of that in recent news? The Crimea, okay. The Crimea six in the Black Sea. What else? Something else that's significant happened on the Black Sea in the last uh, this year. Winter the Winter Olympics, okay. So this is the Black Sea up here, and up on the on the north shore of the Black Sea is where Sochi is, okay, uh, where they had the Winter Olympics, and of course the Crimea sticks down into the Black Sea, etc. So that's that area up there, and we're going to talk in a little bit. If we get that far today, we're going to talk about a region right up here uh, on the Black Sea called Pontus. Okay, it's a Roman province of Pontus up there on the Black Sea. But that's not what I want to talk about right now. Okay, then you have uh, then you have this Greek peninsula, and it comes down sort of like so. Okay, and uh, it comes down, and then you have this this little narrow strip of land, and then there's kind of a bigger body of okay. And this is, and there's islands and all kinds of stuff in here. Okay, so, and if you, uh, uh, I see Debbie has her Bible open to her maps. If you open your maps, you'll see all this. Okay, now Corinth, Corinth is located right here. Okay, so this is Corinth, and we know a lot about Corinth. Okay, what do we know about Corinth? Extremely wealthy, extremely pagan city. Okay, extremely wealthy. And extremely pagan, extremely wicked. Okay, uh, they're just—they were known for their perversity and their wickedness. There's a term they actually had back then. Called, uh, the term was to Corinthianize. Okay, and had to do with all kinds of wickedness and debauchery and sin, etc. Okay, and of course, it's a major church in the New Testament. We have two letters uh, that that have been preserved in our canon of Scripture that were written. Uh, to the church at Corinth. So there was a testimony for Christ in that very wicked culture. But just across this narrow strip of land, about eight, six to eight miles away, is the, little, the smaller city of Kinkria. Okay? And Kinkria is a port city. There's actually kind of a, an inlet there or a harbor there or whatever. And Kinkria is in that, is in that, that uh, little inlet of water there. And, and it's a port city, and it is the, it's the, even though Corinth is on the water over here, Kincrea uh, uh, is, is, uh, is on the coast over here, so it really serves Corinth as Corinth's eastern port city, okay? So, uh, so ships coming from the east, coming to, uh, coming to unload or to sell things or whatever for Corinth, would dock in Kincrea. 
and or uh, for things going up, of course, further up the peninsula or whatever, they would dock at Kincrea rather than have to go all the way around and come around this way to Corinth. So it's a it's a major port city for the city of Corinth. Okay. So what we know then about Kincrea is that it's that it's it's in the orb of Corinth. It's under the influence of Corinth, right? So we can assume that that culture that permeated and poisoned the city of Corinth also permeated and poisoned the city of Kincrea. Okay, and this is the area that this woman Phoebe comes from. So she is a Gentile raised in a pagan home living at this time in the city of Kincrea, which is, a, uh, of course, uh, 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 a, uh, a seaport city and, and has all these aspects of culture that we just talked about. But if it's a seaport city like that, what kind of people would you expect to find in a, in a, in a seaport city like Kincrea? Okay, you're going to find merchants. Okay, you're going to find a lot of merchants. And... Uh, presumably, some of those merchants are going to be well-to-do, right? So, uh, you have what other kind of people are you going to find there? Okay, you're going to find a bunch of slaves. You're going to find a bunch of common laborers, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. What else? Okay, you're going to find the sailors. You know. Uh, they're often always are usually a very colorful lot, uh, and uh, you know they talk about swearing like a sailor or whatever. You know, you so you so you've got these sailors, you've got uh, these common laborers, you've got merchants. So you've got a lot of business transactions going on. If you've got a lot of business transactions going on, what else do you have? Probably have people from all over the region. Okay, so you've got a diverse, uh, diverse uh, population. Okay. Okay, you're going to have financial banks, uh, that kind of thing going on. And whenever you've got banks and people doing business, you got what? Well, you got crime. You got, but you got, uh, you got taxes. You've got disputes, which require us to have judges and lawyers and all that. So you can imagine that Kincrea is this really diverse environment, okay, with all kinds of people, uh, you know, government officials, judges, uh, you know, lawyers, uh, uh, merchants, uh, slaves, common laborers, sailors. You know, this is just a, a really uh, uh, a tremendous mix of people, and this is the city that this woman. Becomes so see, when you just stop and just think about some of the things that we just run over so quick when we read the Bible, when you stop and think about them, you start to get a picture of people, don't you? Okay. So this is this woman, Phoebe, and she's come from this environment. Now, she's traveled to Rome, and we'll get into this a little bit more in a few minutes. She's traveled to Rome, and, and it's apparent from the way the letter is written, she is not traveled to Rome on any particular spiritual endeavor, but she's traveled to Rome on business, okay? And uh, that, uh, and I'll explain why we think that in, in a minute. But So she has traveled to Rome on business, and so what can we conclude then, if that's true, what can we conclude about this woman, Phoebe? She's probably well-to-do, and there's other indications of that in this passage. She's probably well-to-do. She's probably a pretty sharp tack, you know. She's the kind of a woman who does business that requires her to travel to the world's capital in order to transact business, okay? Whatever that business was, we don't know. So, she's a, she, is a, she comes from a pagan culture. She comes from a pagan environment. She's... Uh, apparently uh, 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 fairly well-to-do, obviously business-wise, a very savvy woman, okay? So these are all kinds of things that we can just piece together as we uh, just consider what we know about the ancient world and what we know about the city she came from and things we can gather from her name and her own history. But what else do we know about her? I'm not sure, but 
way it says I convinced you or a sister Phoebe, I'm thinking she's the carrier of the letter to the Okay. Uh, I think virtually unanimously all commentators presume that she is the one who's actually carrying the epistle to the Romans. Okay? And we'll get to that. We'll talk some more about that in a, in a few minutes. But uh, so, um, so, yeah, she's carrying the letter. What else do we know about her? Well, she said that she's helped me, including myself. So she's in a position to be a helper. Okay, okay. Uh, which might refer to this issue of her wealth and her position, you know, maybe her economic position or whatever. But something very obvious, state right up at the beginning. What is it? Before that, she's a sister. She's a Christian. Okay, we just blitz right over that. I'll bet she didn't blitz over it. I'll bet she didn't blitz over it. Think about the environment we just talked about. She came from. Think about the home she grew up in. Think about the fact that she carried the name of a Greek god, goddess. Okay, that was her name. Okay. So she grew up in this pagan environment. She grew up in this pagan home where they thought very highly of the Greek gods and they wanted to name their daughter after the Greek gods. And she, and she grew up in this, this very cosmopolitan type environment and, and, uh, with all this stuff going on. And she's obviously, uh, obviously very much involved apparently in the business world, which I, Presume means that that's the kind of a family she came from. Otherwise, how would a woman have ended up in that position? So, so she obviously grew up in that whole environment and somehow, at some point in time, someone shared Christ with her. And her life was changed. She was transformed. You know, we... And, and it's true about every single one of the people in this list of names in Romans 16. Every one of them is a changed person. Every one of them is somebody who was rescued out of the domain of darkness and was transferred into the kingdom of light. And so here's this woman who at one point in her life was destined to hell. And now she's in the kingdom of God. And we just blitz right by that, don't we? I mean, I do too. I read this and I go, you know, I come into you, sister, uh, baby, our sister. And I just, you know, well, of course she, you know, Paul's writing about her, of course she's a No, it's not, of course she's a sister. It's a miracle. It's a miracle. It's as much a miracle as that you are a brother or sister in Christ. That this, you know, it's not a foregone conclusion that this woman was going to become a Christian. Well, I don't know. Maybe it depends on your theology. But, you know, it's just not a foregone conclusion. This is a miraculous thing that a woman who grew up in this place, in this time of history, in this environment, with this background, with this home life, ends up with her name recorded in one of the most significant books in the New Testament as a sister in Christ. And we know she's not we know this not only because Paul calls her a sister, but he says she is from the church in Concrete. So there's a church in Concrete. Well we all know about the church in Corinth. We've read and talked a lot over, you know, in our lives and about the church in Corinth, but there was a church in Concrete too. And this woman comes from that church in Concrea. And, uh, and uh, so we know that this woman is a woman whose life has been transformed by Christ. But she's not only from the church in Concrea. What else? Well, this is a servant. Okay. 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 So she's a uh, she's a servant of the church in Concrea. Now we won't really understand what that means until we get down into the next verse. Uh, uh, in some of the ways, we know that she was a servant. 
but um, but for now we'll just we'll just take it at face value. She's a servant of the church, and now that word that's translated in some of our translations as servant is translated in other translations as deacon or deaconess. Okay. Uh, and uh, and depending on how it's translated, it's kind of a reflection of the uh, it tends to be a reflection of the uh, viewpoint of the translator. Okay, because when we say someone is a deacon of the church, we tend in English we're, we tend to be saying something a little bit different than if we say someone is a servant of the church. Right? What's the difference? Okay, okay. If we say someone is a deacon, we, particularly in the modern church today, we're referring to a position within the church, okay? Now, at the time of the New Testament church, this whole structure of uh, church government was, was uh, fairly new and was still, to some degree, being developed and being honed, okay? Uh, but we see as early as Acts chapter 7, the beginning of the establishment of this, what we refer to as the office of deacons. Okay? And uh, so it was an official position. So if someone was a deacon uh, in this sense, they were somebody who the church acknowledged and recognized as holding some kind of leadership position in reference to serving the church. Because the word that's translated here, deacon or servant, really just means that, servant. That's what it means. But when it's associated with this kind of office of service, then that, 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 that has more meaning to or has, it implies things more so than to say someone's a servant of the church. We have many servants of the church here at Trinity, don't we? I was, I was talking to... Uh, Larry uh, Toothaker yesterday uh, at the uh, wedding reception about his uh, construction of the Ferris wheel. Did y'all did y'all see the Ferris wheel there on the on the platform for VBS? This actual functioning Ferris wheel. Okay. Well, Larry built that thing, and so I asked him whether or not he built it from uh, whether he built that if they if they had provided him with a plan, a pattern, or something or whether he had constructed that thing from his own brain, from scratch. And he said, I did it from scratch. <laughs> it was really a pretty remarkable instrument for those of you who saw it. I mean, it had the little seats on it, and you know, and they all moved and rotated, and it was about eight feet tall. And so, it's a pretty remarkable thing, you know. And I don't know how much of Ronnie's sermon I listened to that day, because I kept looking, trying to figure out, you know, how did he build this thing, and, you know, how did he figure all these things out. And so, so uh, Larry was, of course, now Larry is an, is an elder here at Trinity, so he has one position. But that was the way he served, okay? He's not a deacon. We don't call him a deacon, but we would call Larry a servant of the church. And there are all the other people who helped in VBS in all the various ways they helped. Decorating the rooms and cooking things and providing for the children and teaching. The, you know, there are all these people just in VBS alone who were served, but they're not deacons, okay? But we have some deacons. We've got one sitting right here, okay? So we have deacons in the church, and they're people who hold kind of a position of official recognition within the church, okay? And it is their job not simply to serve, but it's their job to administer service, okay? To help make sure the service gets done. Okay? So the question then comes up in reference to Phoebe, is was she in this office or was she simply a servant in the more general sense that we use the term? And the issue that's at stake here, of course, is the question of whether or not there is such a thing as deaconesses or official women deacons within the church, whether or not that's uh, New Testament, whether that's biblical or not. Okay? And Christians come down on either side of that question. There are Christians who say, uh, going into uh, Paul's instructions on the appointment of deacons in First Timothy chapter 3 and other places where uh, this idea is dealt with in Acts chapter 7 other places, they say, no. Uh, it, sure, there are women servants. They serve in many ways in the church and their service is crucial and important. But we do not believe because of Paul, things Paul says about uh, authority and leadership in the church 
that there should be such a thing as women deacons in that sense. Okay. There are others who take the other position that uh, recognizing uh, uh, that uh, women's roles of leadership within church, for example, holding positions of pastor or elder or things like that, uh, while they might not hold that they, women should do that, some hold that they can do that also, but they hold uh, as but they but they hold that women can hold the position of deacon. There is such an office as a deaconess in the church. Okay, and Christians differ on that. I, as I study the New Testament, just to be honest with you, as I study the New Testament and I uh, try to piece together the pieces of the puzzle, I uh, I tend to believe there is no such role as deaconess within the church, and that's been, of course, the position that. Uh, the leadership here at Trinity has taken. But I can see that there are strong arguments for the other position. And uh, so I certainly don't think it's a hill I'd want to die on. Okay, But it is an issue of discussion within the church. And of course, it comes up here in this passage about Phoebe. Was she a official, recognized leader in some sense in the church? Uh, or was her role of leadership and role of service, though significant and profound, not official. And that, of course, is, is uh, how I tend to view it. Clearly, her influence within the concurrent church was significant, was quite profound. Uh, her service to that church was quite significant and quite profound. But I don't read into this passage some idea of some, her holding some official position. She is from Cancrea. She has gone to Rome, but because Paul says she is, present tense, a servant of the church in Korea, I assume she's going back to Cancrea. She's not gone to Rome permanently. Okay? And it has been pointed out, has been pointed out, apparently in her going to Rome, as she's going to Rome, she is taking the letter of Romans to the Roman church. And I get excited about that. How would you like to be known as the person to whom the epistle to the Romans was entrusted to carry for hundreds of miles over sea and land to deliver to the church in Rome? What an honor. This week, I've, I've been doing some reading in a, uh, in a book. Uh, uh, been reading about uh, evidences for the resurrection of Christ. And, and uh, one of the strongest arguments, historical arguments, for the fact how we know for sure the tomb was empty. And one of the strongest arguments that we have uh, for the reality of the what we call post-mortem appearances, the appearances of Christ after His death, that He was alive. Okay, so this is what what historians, not just Christians, but this is what historians go back and they look at and they ask themselves: Did the resurrection really happen? Okay, so like I said, they're not even Christian historians. They very very time are are secular historians. Sometimes they're even skeptics. But, but as they go back and they try and weigh out the evidence we have from history, one of the strongest evidences we have for the empty tomb and the, and the appearances, the physical live appearances of Christ after his death is the testimony of the women. It actually is quite significant that that the New Testament records for us that the first people to see that the tomb was empty and the first people to encounter the risen Christ were women. And it's an argument for, uh, for credibility based on embarrassment is what they call it in, in historians call it. It's an argument based on embarrassment. In other words, when I, when I bring as evidence something that happened in the past and I, and I want to present evidence of it, uh, if I'm trying to fabricate this thing, I'm not going to fabricate things that are embarrassing to me. 
I'm not going to use as evidence, I'm not going to fabricate evidence that embarrasses me and makes me look bad or, or is contrary to the way I think. Okay. And so what, one of the things that's significant about the evidences for the resurrection is that it was women. Now, that's not because there's any problem with women. It's because of the, how women were viewed in the first century. That, that, that women were viewed that their testimony was not nearly equal to the credibility of a man's testimony. So in a court of law, you might have to have three or four women testify something before they believe it, and you only have to have one man to say it. Okay? Now, I know that doesn't sound fair. It isn't fair. But that's just the way it was. So if you're writing in the New Testament era and you're saying, look, we know Christ was raised from the dead because the women saw the empty tomb and because the women saw the risen Christ, it's an argument, it's an argument for credibility based on the embarrassment of saying that it was the women who first saw it. See what I'm saying? Okay. So it's cool to me. <laughs> it's cool to me that the Holy Spirit when he's thinking, how do I want people in the 21st century to know that, that Christ was raised from the dead? I know what I'll do. I'll have the women be the first ones to see it. Because that'll be one of the evidences that it really happened. That I had women see it. And women bore the first testimony. Okay. And so in some sense, I think, the Holy Spirit, you know, if I can project into, onto God here, the Holy Spirit is thinking about, you know, how can I make it clear to the church how important women are in my economy? I know what I'll do. I'll take perhaps the most important document of early church history and I'll put it in the hand of a woman. And I'll entrust a woman to take it from Corinth to Rome. And so he does. And so here we have two of the most profound events in the history of the early church. The resurrection of Christ and the transfer, or the tra transportation of this crucial letter of Christian theology. And both of those things, the Holy Spirit said, I'm going to let women do this. Because this is going to show to the world how important they really are. This is earth-shattering, folks. This is earth-shattering. We don't think in those terms today. I mean, we still tend to put women down and demean women, but nothing like it was done in the ancient world. And for for the Christian church to have the attitude towards women that it held and the honor it bestowed upon women was an absolutely countercultural, earth-changing moment. And so we have this woman and she brings this letter to Rome and Paul says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe. Now, what we have here, actually the letter wasn't written for this purposes, but what we have here is a letter of commendation. Okay. And letters of commendation are, are uh, very common. They're very common in the ancient world and we have our forms of them today, right? Okay. So we have this idea of someone is going somewhere where they're not known and we want to make sure that they are properly received so we send a letter of commendation this is very very common as I say even in the ancient world and Paul's formulation here at the beginning of chapter 1 very formulaic this is the way it was done I commend to you so and so okay so even the way he says it is very culturally formulaic okay I'm not meaning he's not sincere here but what I mean is this is, this is very commonly done this is what you would do uh, when someone was going from one place to another. And, and so Paul is, Paul is saying to the Roman Christians, this is a woman that I approve of. That she's got my uh, St. Paul stamp of approval on her life. And so you can trust her. Uh, she's, uh, uh, she's the real deal. Okay? 
And, and this was important for the church. Because there are all kinds of people, as we're learning, there's all kinds of people traveling all over the world, right? And there are people showing up in these churches all the time. And sometimes they were bona fide believers who loved God, who'd been really transformed by the cross. And sometimes they were fakes and they were frauds. We're going to encounter some of those later in this chapter. Okay, So you got both. So if you're a church there in the New Testament era and somebody comes knocking on your door, uh, how are we going to know? Are they bona fide? You know, have they really been transformed by Christ? Or you know, are they coming bearing some strange false doctrine? How are we going to know? Well, they would send letters of commendation with them. And sometimes letters of commendation were needed. So, for example, you have the story of Apollos. Now, Apollos is a Jewish guy from Alexandria in Egypt. And he shows up in Ephesus at one point, And he knows a little bit about God. Uh, and like I say, he's a Jew. And he knows a little bit about Christ, etc. So he's, he's preaching about God. And he's preaching about Christ. But he really doesn't have the whole scoop. Okay. And by this time, Prisca and Aquila, who obviously we're not going to meet this week. We'll meet him next week. But they, by this time, are in Ephesus. And they hear about this guy, Apollos. So they go and they talk to him. And they find out he just doesn't know the whole story. He hasn't heard about all this stuff. So they sit him down and they tutor him in the faith. And this guy just lights on fire. I mean, he's a great, uh, great orator, powerful speaker. And now he's got the full gospel. And he just really starts lighting a fire. And after he's there in Ephesus for a while, he wants to go to Corinth. And so he, he, he tells the church in Ephesus, I want to go to Corinth. So what do they do? They wrote a letter of commendation to the church in Corinth. So the church in Corinth receives a list on Acts chapter 18. They receive a letter from uh, the uh, church in Ephesus that says, hey, this guy Apollos, he's the real deal. You can trust him. You... And so he goes to Corinth and he has a powerful effect there in the area of Corinth. Okay? Why? Because he had a letter of commendation. But there are situations where you don't need a letter of commendation. And Paul talks about that in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Because what you have in 2 Corinthians is you have a problem in Corinth where even though Paul started the church in Corinth and got the whole thing going, by now you've got some people in Corinth saying Paul's not the real thing. <laughs> Paul's not apostle. Okay. And so they're countering Paul. And so Paul now writing to Corinth, this is uh, probably writing from Macedonia, he's writing to Corinth in 2 Corinthians and he says, with you, he says, I do not need a letter of commendation. Acts chapter, or First Corinthians chapter, Second Corinthians chapter three. I don't need a letter of commendation with you. Why doesn't he not leave a letter of commendation with them? Because they know him. They got saved under his ministry, right? He says, "You are our letter. Your very lies are the evidence that I'm the real deal." So there were situations where letters of commendation were needed. And there were situations where commendations were not needed. Okay? And in the case of Phoebe, she's a case where a letter of commendation is needed. We have modern versions of letters of commendation in the church today, don't we? What are they? Membership. Letters of transfer, right? Sometimes somebody will come to church and they want to join the church. And, and so what they'll do is before they leave their previous church, their previous home, some other city or whatever, they get a letter and they bring that letter with her. And the letter says, we're, we're the real thing. You know, these people are the real thing. They've been converted. They've been baptized. And we can testify that they're in good standing in our fellowship and we encourage you to receive them. And so sometimes when somebody comes to a church, we say they come by letter. They come bearing a letter. Okay? It's just a letter of commendation. You know, it's a, it's a 2,000 year old practice we do in the church. We don't do it as much as we used to. Because we have other ways also of receiving people into membership by baptism and by what we say statement. That means the person comes and they just make a statement that they love the Lord and that they committed to Him and that their lives are, uh, are without, uh, without major uh, moral flaw or whatever. And they make a statement and we receive that statement. Okay. So, but we're familiar with this whole idea of letter commendation and that's what Paul is doing here with Phoebe. Now, uh, What's happened here this morning is what I expect happened. I spent so much time talking about Phoebe. We wouldn't even get 
to Chris Canicola. But I even have a few more things I want to say about Phoebe. Okay. So next week when we get together, we'll talk a little bit more about Phoebe and then we'll go on and we'll talk about Chris Canicola because they're pretty cool people too. Okay? Great.